Welcome to Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Vitreo. We bring you free-flowing conversations with top thought leaders in philanthropy and the nonprofit sector. Sit back, relax, listen and enjoy as we share ideas and discuss topics that are important, timely, and we hope will transform the nonprofit world. Hello, and welcome to Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Vitreo. This is episode 22, recorded Thursday, November the 29th, 2018. This episode is a partnership between Vitreo and the Association of Fundraising Professionals, Calgary and Area. It was recorded as part of AFP Calgary and Area's National Philanthropy Week Professionals Forum at the Oddfellows Hall in downtown Calgary. I'm Vincent Duckworth. I'm a fundraiser and a partner with Vitreo Group. We are a national agency focused on bold leadership and transformative fundraising. In this episode, our first of 2019, and our second ever podcast with a live audience, we are joined by Joanne Cuthbertson, former Chancellor at the University of Calgary, Stephanie Faleski, former Calgary United Way campaign co-chair and current co-chair of the Calgary Health Trust NICU campaign, Rebecca Morley, former board chair of YW Calgary and Calgary Top 40 Under 40 2018 recipient, and Kate Fisher, legal counsel for Alta Gas and co-chair, along with Stephanie, of Calgary Health Trust's NICU campaign. Our topic, Calgary, engaging the next generation of leaders, donors, and volunteers. Calgary's new normal is one where energy prices are and remain low. Its corporate sector has seen a significant and perhaps permanent downsizing, and along with that, corporate sponsorship is down as much as 30%, and it has been that way for more than 24 months. In contrast, Calgary continues to grow as a world city. Calgary is building a new contemporary art gallery, is re-energized around new sports facilities, and is celebrating the opening of its beautiful new central library. Against this backdrop, we ask for the thoughts and observations of two generations of Calgarians. Specifically, we ask what has changed in philanthropy, in volunteerism, and in community leadership. Join us as we hear what four amazing women have to say on this and more on Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Vitreo. We have four amazing guests with us today. These inspiring women join us from two of Calgary's most generous families, two generations of volunteers, leaders, and donors. I'm excited to be here. They're excited to be here. Our audience is excited to be here. Let's get started. I'm going to start by introducing our panelists from the furthest to closest to me. Their bios are going to be on the Vitreo website. They're in the document in front of you. We had a little version control challenge with Stephanie's, not her fault. Um, and so the bio there is a little out of date, so check our website for the, the one that's most accurate. So I just wanted to put that out there. So first I want to welcome Joanne Cuthbertson, on my far left. Joanne serves as director, as director and leadership council co-chair of the Perimeter Institute for Theoretical Physics and continues to serve, that sounds a pretty big deal and continues to serve on various University of Calgary advisory councils. She has also served as Chancellor of the University of Calgary from 2006 to 2010. Joanne, welcome. Thank you very much. Thanks very much. I think I this one. I do want to say I'm really happy to be here today and excited. Um, I'm happy to be in the company of fundraisers. It's a group of people that I have a lot of regard for and I spend time with, and I like spending that time. And I do look forward to learning a lot today together. So Joanne is basically telling you that when we ask for questions, she'll be holding you personally accountable for asking something. <laughs> Joanne, we're going to hear from you on a number of topics later in the podcast, but before we do, last week you had the opportunity as Chancellor Emeritus at the University of Calgary to participate in a convocation event that only happens once every four years, the inst installation of a new Chancellor. I'm wondering if you can share with us what that was like. Um, thanks, Vincent. That, um, of course, convocation to me is always a very, very important day. And, uh, you know, it's um, a unique kind of event that happens um, at universities, uh, going back to medieval, the medieval roots of universities, lots of pomp and circumstance at a convocation, lots of gowns and other, and other things. But this was uh, installing Deborah Yedlin, a very well-known Calgary figure, very today, very relevant, very engaged in her community, and um, uh, absolutely a fabulous chancellor. So her her role, in ter she was installed. I always think of a fridge when I think of that, to get the right word. Deborah Yedlin is no fridge. No. 
but you know, so she comes into this very uh, ancient role, um, and then part of the the um, convocation was that Deborah delivered the convocation address to the students, and at that moment, you see immediately how contemporary she is in terms of her address to the students and talking about from a really personal place what education means and has meant in her life, what it means to these students graduating and their families around them. And, and in terms of setting, uh, uh, sending a message to them of her um, high anticipation and expectations of what these young people are going to go forth and do in their lives. And I think there's a relationship to that and what we think about in our communities today. So it, it was, it was a great event and she gave them just a great message of encouragement, inspiration and high expectation too. Well, I remember, Joanne, uh, we had uh, a luncheon in preparation for this podcast, and I think you were there as well, Stephanie, you were with Joanne, and uh, you guys came back just bubbling with excitement with what Deborah had charged the audience with, so I was so thrilled to hear that, and what a great new chancellor. Thanks for sharing that, Joanne. Next, sitting beside Joanne is Joanne's daughter and mother grandchild, and soon another one, Kate Fisher. Kate is Senior Corporate Counsel for Alta Gas Limited and is currently serving as co-chair of the Calgary Health Trust Newborns Need Campaign. Welcome, Kate. Thanks. Kate, before we get into the topic of today's podcast, can you share with us a bit about the Calgary Health Trust NICU, NICU, NICU campaign, the, the, the Newborns Need Campaign, and why you're involved? I know you might talk about that later, but what's, why did you get involved? Um, it's a pretty relevant, for those who are in the room, you can see why it's pretty relevant to me. Um, what? <laughs> um, with, you know, I have a, a young child at home and one on the way, and while I hope the NICU will be more of an insurance policy for us, um, it feels really relevant to myself and my community. We know lots of folks who visited it. And what I think is exciting about the NICU campaign and the Calgary Health Trust's role is that it takes what would be your typical sort of renovation of the NICU, um, and it sort of moves it from good to great. You take that initial infrastructure investment, and it's how do we make that world-class, and how do we take the research that's being done at the university, um, the understandings we have of what women and families need in the community, and tie that into part of their care. And that isn't done if the hospital works alone, and the university works alone, and the clinics work alone. And so what excited me about it is the health trust is the way to bridge all of that and really bring um, a huge improvement, I think, in the service that moms and their families are receiving in Calgary. So that was kind of what, what hooked me. Thanks very much, Kate. Appreciate that. Sitting beside Kate, we have Rebecca Morley. Rebecca, welcome. I, uh, uh, Rebecca is a corporate director and chair of the audit committee of Birchcliff Energy, and in January, Rebecca will be starting her new career in management consulting with McKinsey and Company. So, congratulations and welcome to the podcast. Awesome. Also, for those that don't know, because the seating order was different on here, so I'm just going to put it out that uh, also Stephanie Fleski's daughter-in-law, so that's the reference there. Um, I wanted to get that out there. So thank you for that. Rebecca, you recently served as the board chair, well, for a while, actually, for YW Calgary, and both you and Kate, I think, were very involved in the YW campaign. Can you share with us a little bit about what that campaign was like? I know it's still going on, yeah. but your involvement and, and, and your role in that and how that sure. all Yeah, Um Hard to sum up everything that happened at the Y over the last six years, but it was a phenomenal um, thing to be a part of. It started with um, us realizing that our building that existed was mission prohibitive, and what were we going to do? Mission and prohibitive. <laughs> wasn't working. It absolutely did not work, and the services that the YW provides today are much different than they were when that building was originally bought. And the board and the management team decided to, um, we were in a unique position to leverage our asset. We owned that entire city block downtown, and um, and we sold it. And it was one of the largest uh, real estate transactions in Calgary in the last 10 years. We sold it for $48 million, Woo! Yeah. <laughs> which was amazing. Uh, bought new land in Inglewood and are nearing completion of a new $60 million home for the YW. Um, in doing that, the board and management had a lot of discussions about uh, fundraising for that building, 
and how are we going to go about doing that and seeing that it would be sustainable for the years to come. And as many of you know, not-for-profit industries don't often get a chance to operate with a sustainability fund of sorts or an operational fund. And we felt it was really important, so we took our took the asset, and then we went out to raise 20 million from government and 20 million privately, and we committed 20 million to the building ourselves, which would leave us with 27 million dollars when it's built in order to run the facility. So that was a big task. It took a lot of convincing both government and individuals that they should give us money when we had money in the bank. Um, but it did ultimately resonate. We did raise 20 million dollars from the three various levels of government. And we only have $7 million left in the capital campaign uh, privately, much thanks to Joanne and um, a team of, of individuals that we put together to help us with that. So um, I think it was creative thinking on behalf of the organization um, in how we fundraised and leveraging assets. And I think it's just going to be magnificent for the organization and for vulnerable women in Calgary to have this new facility and to serve that uh, population. Not to mention all the amazing and powerful women you had on that campaign and cabinet and board. So yeah. Thank you very much for that. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank, thanks for joining us today, Rebecca. And uh, sitting beside me, we have the amazing Stephanie Fleski. So, I, uh, Stephanie, um, who you are amazing. We were a little worried about these chairs, though, but you're certainly tall enough for it up here. So, um, Steph Stephanie is a member of the Calgary Police Commission and is past co-chair of the United Way Campaign of Calgary. Stephanie, welcome. Thank you. My pleasure to be here. Um, Stephanie, you and Brian co-chaired the Calgary United Way campaign a few years back. Can you share with us what went through your mind when they asked you to take on this role? <laughs> well, we were, I had been a board chair of the United Way in the uh, mid to late 90s, and so was very familiar with the uh, organization as a whole and was passionate about uh, what they were doing to solve uh, issues in the community. Uh, but we were both absolutely terrified. We were honored. We were the first co-chairs uh, that the United Way had ever had. Previous to that, it was usually some corporate CEO who um, had, you know, a large company organization, a CI department behind them, and uh, here we were. My husband had uh, a very successful law firm. I was really just a community volunteer. And we had to raise $50 million. And we didn't want to be the first co-chairs that ever had on their tombstone did not make gold. <laughs> so um, at any rate, we, we really worked hard, the two of us, um, and... Being a husband and wife, we had lots of time to figure out how to go about it. One of the things that we decided to do was to um, raise the goal of the number of participants, the number of donors. So uh, that made for a really interesting uh, different slant on the campaign, and we did make goal. It won't be on our tombstone that we didn't uh, we didn't make it, but at that time we did manage to bring in three thousand new donors to the United Way. So uh, we felt really, really good and positive about that. That's awesome. Thanks. Uh, when we were doing our preparation for this session, uh, Stephanie did use that tombstone line. And I was hoping she would do it today, <laughs> so she did. Thank you for that. So what an amazing panel. And again, welcome. Let's give our hand up. Okay, let's get started. Thank you all for joining on, on this, our 22nd podcast. Today's topic, Calgary, engaging the next generation of leaders, donors, volunteers. Calgary has been through and seen a lot. In recent years, we've seen our energy-dependent economy falter into what many thought would be another bust-boom cycle. The new normal has been anything but. Vacancy rates in downtown Calgary remain at 30%. But the world is willing to pay for Canadian, Canadian energy is being discounted. And our corporate sector has seen significant restructuring and downsizing. At the same time, Calgary has again become a multicultural city with immigration and youth taking and making our city into a 21st century cosmopolitan hub. On the heels of an Olympic-sized no, we are now looking to reinvigorating and re-energizing around a new contemporary art gallery, a new field house, and maybe, I dare I say it, a new NHL arena. 
This on top of the opening of our spectacular new central library, the establishment of the National Music Centre, and the building of two of the world's largest YMCAs, just to mention a few things. We have invited four of Calgary's leading women to join us to talk about what has changed and what is it that is needed to change, specifically around leadership, volunteering, and giving in our city. So I want to get into it now. Now to our first question. Panelists, you and your families have had a long involvement in Calgary's philanthropic community. You have seen some tremendous highs and some difficult lows. The current economic downturn has hit Calgary especially hard. Calgary is still recovering. Evidence points to the fact that it is recovering more slowly than many have expected. Against this backdrop, what has changed or needs to change in how Calgary's nonprofit sector is or needs to be funded? Joanne, did you want to start the conversation on this one? Yeah, I'm happy to do that. I think um, it's it's something that, um, it, it's a question that comes up to me. We, we started off with this question among ourselves, so what has changed? And I think that there have been really significant changes in Calgary in terms of the work that you do and the kinds of things that we'll get involved in, too, as volunteers, um, in terms of trying to raise the funds that we need in the city to support things that are important to the quality of our community. And, um, and this fundamental rule or understanding we have of the work of uh, raising funds coming first from the relationships we build. So Calgary was very successful at amassing large amounts of money for any number of things that we felt were important in the community, and it's been a shock the last while how much that has changed. And um, I think we knew that we had a a really unique and a tremendously supportive corporate community, and that community is really suffering and cannot support at the level that uh, we were really accustomed to. And I think it's um, providing us a really good and a really positive lesson. Um, I had a conversation with Bob McPhee, and it was a couple years ago. He talked about the difference between Edmonton and Calgary. He said, you know, in... in uh, Edmonton is actually going through this downturn in uh, in energy better than Calgary because Edmonton never had that downtown corporate community that it could go to and talk about important things in the community. And Edmonton had to really concentrate on its relationships with individual donors. And so those relationships were continuing in Edmonton and were affected in a different way than the corporate. So it's a, it's, um, for us a lesson. Okay. Fine. We just gotta remember and we have to do what we're good at and we have to, I think, focus on our relationships with individuals in the community and build that up and build up that, uh, and grow that sense in the community among our individuals of, um, of their part in that. Welcome them into that part. Invite them into that part, encourage them, and build the the relationship with them to um, uh, the sense uh, develop their sense of being a, a donor and a supporter of their communities. So I think the change is really felt everywhere in the community. But I think we'll take positive um, learnings from it. Right. So the rise of the individual donor, right? And yeah. also, I mean, the corporate sector is always going to be important, but I think it's been stripped back enough for us to see that. We need to probably diversify there, too. Any of you want to weigh in on that? Any thoughts against Joanne's comments? No, I, I would just um, say that I think everybody in this room has recognized what's happened on a corporate side. And, yes, we do have to move to the individual donor uh, in a, in a um, larger way than we ever did. Um, I think you're also seeing the rise of things like benevity, um, uh, you know, the social uh, corporate responsibility uh, consulting group. You're seeing social media take a huge role in it. And for me, it always leads to getting your case stronger. So with this new trend, the case has to be refined, refined, refined. Um, Kate and I working on the, the NICU project together, we have spent mm, six months getting to what the real issue of the case is. How are we working with everybody? How are we working with the government? Who's in the game? What? Who are our collaborators? And the more you can build that case, the more you can show donors that 
we're all in this together, that we're moving forward. We have an idea. We need their help. Uh, but we're not going to do it unless we're um, all on the same path. And that, uh, to me, is something that everybody in this room is is part of, along along with the people who are on the, the cabinet. That's awesome that you brought up the case for support, and I'm glad that you did. Rebecca or Kate, did you want to weigh in on anything before I move on to the next question? Anything that you heard there that you wanted to add to? Personally, I don't have as much experience as what was. I only know <laughs> so, this so, new so, Calgary. So why don't you tell us what, what, you, what you see now, So as opposed to what, what was. What's changed or what, what's important in giving today? Um, I would agree. I don't think the companies, you know, as somebody at a company who is that is not in a position to give big dollars at this point, you know, and none of our peers are either. Uh, and I think there's also a bit of a trend uh, in corporate governance to say, what are companies doing giving away money. It's not their money. It's not their, their call. It should be the shareholder's call. So I think there's also a bit of a push within companies to get it out to shareholders, out to individuals to give. So I think, um, you know, I think we're just going to see even if, and here's hoping, we get to more of a boom time, I think there still is going to be more pressure to go to the individuals and not to the companies. Mm -hmm. I think that's the silver lining of this uh, this experience is that Calgary is now realizing that that individual giving needs to be as important as corporate giving, if not more. So thanks for that. I think it's really important. I was say in in our campaign that we're doing for the Y now, we've seen um, no corporate donors to date. It has all been based on relationships and um, and having a very strong case, which takes a long time to refine. But um, as you go to new donors, I think that um, they're hearing things from lots of different, getting lots of different requests. So being very crisp on on that, I do think will make makes a big difference um, in appealing to them because I think they are getting pitched more and more. And so um, being really crisp and fully under, having them fully understand quickly the impact of their dollars makes a big difference. I heard a common element up here about the cases take a long time to develop. So they're, that's something to remind ourselves of that just, oh, well, let's just spend a month, put the case together and it'll work. And really you said six months or, or longer even with some of these and they're always really under iteration, right? That's great. Thank you. Panelists, the, the nonprofit sector relies exclusively on volunteers as board members. Calgary's had a long history of leaders, especially our corporate leaders stepping up to fill these ranks. What has changed or needs to change to ensure that our nonprofits and their governing boards stay vibrant, current, and relevant? Stephanie, you shared some of your thoughts on this when we had our preparation luncheon last week. Did you want to start off and talking about what our boards need to be moving towards? Certainly. Um, I, in my lengthy experience, um, and I certainly, <laughs> I, and certainly, um, I've been involved in province-wide campaigns, uh, and noticed that huge difference between Edmonton and Calgary and, and the uh, role of the individual in Edmonton. Calgary, historically, our boards were populated. We always tried to get a couple of corporate leaders. Uh, on our boards because that seemed to be the way that we attracted the corporate dollars. Uh, Calgary, the downtown hub, you could walk easily from one uh, oil and gas uh, company to another. It was um, concentrated in one spot, and uh, that's the way it was. But now we see the change, and we see a change for what we need on boards. So yes, we need the corporate leaders, but we need them in different sectors. We need people, we have a huge, huge transportation, warehousing, uh, business. Um, you know, that's largely overlooked. We have a huge, um, we just finished, uh, with, uh, Cheryl sitting at this table, the Resolve campaign, and it'll never really be finished, but, uh, that involved the home builders, um, different groups. And we need younger people to sit on those boards. So we have to always be expanding our horizons and looking at, you know, like who is really interested in what we're doing and get them on the boards. Make them feel welcome because what we do know from looking at these two is once they're engaged, once the younger people are engaged, they stay there for a very long time, if not forever, like Joanne and I. Um, <laughs> And, and it's, it's sometimes, you know, we spend a lot of time with whatever we're involved with, 
with our case, getting people out of the situation there is, building something, housing, uh, whatever. And we have to figure out a better way for getting people into the whole cause. And one of the ways to do that is to uh, get them actively engaged on the boards. Perfect. Good ideas. Joanne, do you want to weigh in with anything? Um, I, I, you know, what you just said, Stephanie, really resonates with me. This we we need to find a way to let people get involved. And I am um, so I seem to have so many anecdotes. Another uh, another individual in our community. So, and this was some time ago. So he he was much younger then, and he was approached to give. It might have been a thousand dollars. It might have been five thousand dollars to something. And you know what he said? He said, well, nobody has ever asked me to give a thousand dollars before, so I guess I will. And it's, I think what that shows is some of this, um, that we need to remember, and I think this is things we work on together as volunteers and as, as, uh, fundraising professionals. We need to actually be quite, uh, deliberate and conscious about inviting people and giving permission to people to take on these roles and to get involved in um, in something like this that just might not have imagined was uh, was including them or that you know we're talking about other people we're not talking about them so I think we have to be quite um, aware of that that uh, some people may may have a lot to offer and may even be pretty willing to offer and we didn't ask them. So I think that's a, a good point. On the boards of organizations or on on a, um, you know, pulling together an advisory group, group to try to raise some funds for something really important. Mm-hmm. Now, the board of the YW campaign was probably reflective of that new trend moving towards um, more diversification, more engagement of people in the community. Would that be fair? Um, yeah, so... Um, Kate and I can both speak to that, but the YW board is, it is mandated nationally to be all women. Um, we do our best to have diversity, um, um, across those women and that age and, and through other ways as well. Um, and I think we saw that we continually see the benefits of that, not only for the YW, but also you see all these young people. Kate and I were both, I think, I'd like to think, benefactors of the young women on the boards. <laughs> and um, and the learning was tremendous. It was an incredibly well-governed board. And even though I know for me, myself, when I joined, I wasn't sure how I would be able to contribute. Over the six years, I'd like to think that I, I did. I learned a lot. It was personally beneficial for me. And then I can take that now to other boards. I now sit on the board of Winsport, which is been an excellent opportunity, and I hope to continue to do it until I'm 29. (laughs) That's awesome. That's awesome. Now, of course, we kind of know what your age is uh, approximately because you are one of our top 40 under 40 this year. Thank you. Congratulations. Thank you. (laughs) We don't have time on this podcast to talk about the photo shoot for that. No, let's not. (laughs) Okay, thanks, guys. Did you want to uh, add to that, or should I move on to the next question, Kate? Um, I, I guess I would just say, I think that's right. I think it's, you know, again, going back to sort of the corporate parallels, diversification is a big deal, reaching beyond that inner circle. Um, and I think, you know, you see it as much on our not-for-profit boards. It's the same folks being tapped often. And so to try and reach that bigger audience, Stephanie, you were talking about reaching people who really care about a cause, because they will be very passionate for you on the board versus somebody who may be very connected but sits on 10 other boards. How much fundraising are they really going to be able to do for your organization? Um, I think the other thing is approaching people that haven't been asked. And if they, ha- some may just be honored to be asked. And yes, it's, it's wonderful to just volunteer your time. But if you haven't experienced that and haven't sort of, um, sipped the Kool-Aid yet, I think there, I think it's okay to pitch it as a selfish thing, too, to say to people, you get something back. So you've never done a board before. You've never volunteered before. There's something in it for you. The organization will benefit from, like, there's a reason you're approaching someone to join a board or, you know, be a benefactor. Um, so they're clearly going to provide something to the organization. But 
they will get something too. You know, Rebecca, as you said, like when both of us joined the YW board, I learned a ton from the women that I got to sit on that board with. Um, I was on the Contemporary Calgary board as well, learned a, a lot from a number of leaders that were on that board. I, there's no question I got something out of it, and I think it is okay for folks who are new to volunteerism to to sell it to them as, look, there's something in it for you too. It doesn't have to be strictly feel good um because i think sometimes we feel like it should be you know it's just it should, yeah yeah um, exactly yeah. Yeah. i think that's a great point it's going to a great lead-in for the third question too before we get there i just i think when we were doing our preparation lunch i might have shared this story with you that i did work with an organization it was a, a theater organization and there were some board members who didn't like theater <laughs> And I thought, wow, uh, I, th I think brand forward, mission forward, and that's what you're talking about. You gotta be passionate about these things. So I think it's important that we, that we get there. So thank you for that. Uh, third question. Everywhere we look, it seems, there are stories about these millennials, this millennial generation. They are simultaneously spoken about as our doom bringers or our saviors. How can we better work with this generation of donors, volunteers, and talent? And Kate, I want to, and Rebecca, I want to uh, kick this to you, even though I have a 29-year-old beside me. Both of you had something to say on this topic as part of our preparations. I'm wondering if you wanted to share some of your thoughts and ideas around how to get people to think about being involved, not just on boards, but as donors and as leaders. Um, well, I'll just take, continue from what Kate just said. I think, um, I think helping millennials understand that it doesn't just have to be completely selfless. If you do get something out of it, you feel good yourself, you learn a lot, you meet great people, you make contacts, you um, develop relationships that lead into mentors. So there's lots that you can gain other than this selfless feel-good uh, act. And so I think that that's something. I also think that getting involved in boards or even just at the committee level can be it can be intimidating, and, you know, recently um, we brought, Kate and I both termed out in June, and we brought a number of young board members onto the Y, and one of them said to me, I mean, she's a, a brilliant girl. She's a chemical engineer. She has an MBA from NCAD. She has tremendous experience working with executives. And she said, well, I just don't know if I could contribute. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> you have no idea. <laughs> and so just letting, helping them to see that bringing a young mind with a fresh perspective, someone who's intelligent, someone who cares, um, and letting them see that there is a way for them to give. And she, in the end, was so flattered, and she's on the board today. I think she's going to be tremendous for the organization over the next six years, and I think she's going to be tremendous for the city of Calgary over the next 50. Um, and I, and I'll just tag on to that just one other thing. I think that, you know, there very well may be many millennials who have the capacity to give and just haven't been asked. But by bringing them in on a volunteer level, I think it also gives them a greater understanding of what the actual need is. Um, if you sit on an audit committee, then you understand the challenge around generating revenue, where expenses are, how the money gets spent. And then I think you become, I know it, I did definitely at the Y, became more passionate about the need to raise money and how to go about and do that and start to get creative about different ways. And I know everyone in this room works very hard at that. And so you have, um, can share those insights and with new younger volunteers and help them, um, understand different ways that they can, that they can give. Great. Kate, did you want to? Um, yeah, I think the other piece is, you know, um, as you say, yes, there are some millennials, and we hear about them lots because you hear stories out of Silicon Valley or whatever, say, who have tons of capacity to give. But most young people are, you know, are still early in their careers, um, have lots of big costs they've had to take on, are hugely distracted by things that are happening at work and at home, um, and, you know, probably are uh, just on the front end of, their capacity to sit on boards and to write big checks and do that kind of thing. But it's a long cycle. Um, I guess I don't really know this. I suppose if I have uh, enough money that strangers want to knock on my door when I'm 60 and ask for money for the first time, maybe that feels great. But I, I think it's a longer cycle than that. I think you need to get people to buy in before they're at the stage in their life where they can cut a big check because I don't think that's going to come out of nowhere. Um, and so I think if you can, and that, you know, for me, when I joined the NICU capital campaign, um, I am quite certain I will not be there the, the 
most beneficial co-chair. I think I, I think Stephanie, I have a lot to learn from Stephanie. Um, but I can bring in a new generation who will be a friend of the health trust and over many campaigns will be more committed, will be, their capacity to give will be bigger. And so I think there's an element of investment with millennials to say this is the start of a relationship and you will see over the generations that um, both their their capacity to give and their willingness to give, but also their networks and who they're able to reach out to will grow. Um, so I think it's just the time horizon has to be a little bit longer with millennials. I was hoping you bring that up. We talked about that in our in our preparation for this, about, and you raised it then about that we need to think about investing in millennials. And so I'm glad you talked about that. Mm-hmm. Stephanie or Joanne, did you want to add to this question or comments? Well, I, I think uh, as we discussed earlier. Um, with millennials, there's a whole societal thing that's going on as well. And that is, when I was 40, my last child was in school. Now, they're having children at 40. So by the time they finished doing the kindergarten treasurer role and their job and coaching soccer and, 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 they're in their 50s. So, you know, there's a little bit of, of that going on as well in terms of time. A lot of uh, most families are, are two career families. That's very different than certainly when I started out. But I think that long, um, that long-term building of what being or what participating in philanthropy is all about begins not just with fundraising, and that's what people don't want to do. That's why they sort of you know, resist getting onto a board because they think that's all what it is. We all know in this room that we're all, it's all about time, talent, and treasure. So with, with the younger group, maybe you pitch them that this is, you know, not necessarily a time or a treasure, but we just want a little bit of your talent. You know, the chemical as, engineer. Yeah, a specified job for them so that they're not overwhelmed with it all. They're not trying to keep up with everybody on the board. But, you know, that friend raising around a cause is just as important as the fundraising. And if we don't start it with the younger people, we're going to be very disappointed uh, as we move forward. Great comment. Thanks for highlighting the differences between the generations. I know we talked about that before. Joanne? Um, I remember not too long ago when um, the beef we had was that these really wealthy 40-year-olds were just not giving. And um, we were going through that period of time. People were making um, a lot of money, and but they were still pretty young. And, and like Stephanie said, waiting longer to have their children. And, and so um, I, I think that... You know what? I don't know. I think I think Milan, I think we are at a little bit of a turning point in um, society all over the world. But let's not lose um, sight of the fact that actually this is an age-old kind of life pattern that people go through, and there are aspects of it that shift a bit. But um, people have to get through it. And I, one of my earliest, earliest experiences was a fundraiser sharing with me this life cycle. And, you know, uh, so, I mean, I was really young then, too, and needing what Stephanie was talking about, like, give me something concrete and, like, realizing, please realize I can, I've only got so much experience and I only have so many contacts. Um, but, you know, I took this lesson forever about how people go through their patterns and where they're at at different stages. And um, I also can well remember a time when some of the people we might look around in our community and think that they're just our greatest benefactors, they were nowhere in sight. Like, they were, you know, they were making their money for sure. They were doing really well. They were very successful. But they, they weren't on the horizon in terms of being great benefactors at all. It kind of takes getting to that place. So in terms of, you know, looking for people to give. And... um and I, and I think just, you know, the um, nice part of, about what um, the fundraising profession understands is, again, back to the relationship. When I was uh, at the university in the chancellor's office, I brought, um, we had a very seasoned uh, and senior fundraiser course heading up uh, development at the university. And I got him to come in and talk to the students because he had life lessons like, 
just, you know, keep your relationships um, decent and strong and respectful and um, open because you never know in his business, you never know where that big donation is coming from. You didn't see it coming. You didn't know that was the person who was going to give you the big check. And, and it was such a life lesson for our kids. Don't, you know, don't make assumptions about people. You know, treat everyone like, yeah, they're going to be part of this. They're, you know, they're at, they're at the place they're at, but we're going to work on this together. And, and I just, he, he had so much to share in terms of, um, us keeping, honest about what we're doing and just trying to keep that perspective with things. Thanks for that reminder, Joanne, that the, that uh, as much as we talk about millennials as a new phenomenon, it's really a repeat of an older phenomenon with some changes in terms of, you know, having babies later and stuff like that. So thank you for that. All right. We've heard from the panelists, uh, and what we've heard has been thought-provoking, provoking, inspiring, uh, a little bit sobering, but mostly hopeful. Uh, is what I heard. So now it's time for you, our audience, to weigh in. Remember, please, wait for the microphone. We want to ensure that your question becomes famous. Who has the first question for our panel? Stu's got the microphone, so let's see some hands. Don't disappoint Joanne. <laughs> Who's got a question for the panel? Yes, you're here. You could just list your name, and that'd be helpful for us. Sure. Uh, my name is Manira, and... I'm a millennial. I don't know if I should say that. Yes. <laughs> um, but the question actually has to do with um, diversification that you guys talked about. So I work for Between Friends. We're a bit of a smaller nonprofit. Um, in this day and age, how do you propose organizations diversify their audience and grow their audience? Do you still think events are relative? Right. That's a very Go ahead, Stephanie. I heard you. Yeah, uh, take it's a, a very good question because one of the things um, um, that we got started in the late '90s was the Calgary Homeless Foundation, that has led ultimately to our Great Resolve campaign, where we raised seventy-five million dollars for housing over the last five years. Um, and when we started that, we were very heavy on events. So, and that continued for about 10 years. We used to roast the premier. We roasted Ralph Klein. And we would bring in politicians from all across uh, Canada. It was a huge job. It was a huge job for our volunteers. It was a huge job for our paid uh, development staff. And when we really took a look at the dollar value that we raised out of it, even though it was a wildly popular event, it really didn't justify, it was a friend raiser, let me put it that way. And so then there were contacts that we could go out and raise. But I think the trend now is more about the individual ask. Uh, you need those friend raising events to connect people, but um, they don't have to be uh, something as massive as a huge roast of the premier in order to uh, get your case across to people. So I think, I think economically that's been proven out over the last 10 years. I'm trying to get the image of a roasted premier out of my mind. <laughs> <laughs> Does anyone uh, else want to weigh in on that, uh, that question? I can weigh in, um, quickly. So, uh, being involved with the why. And actually, you can talk to Sarah at your table here, who is heavily involved as well. So we have our annual gala called the Why Whisper Gala that was started eight years ago. And I would absolutely agree with Stephanie. Um, as you look at the work that goes into it, I don't know that I would say there were huge, huge dollars raised that made you know a huge difference to our annual operating budget. But the friend-raising component of it, I really do think was important. And if you can have an event that carries on, and when you have good bones, and then you have new volunteers who come in and take it to the next level, um, it, it's, it has been very successful uh, for the Y from that perspective. Not so much from the dollars-raised perspective, but um, it was started by Jane McCaig. I chaired the gala for two years. Then it got taken over on the last two years by Shannon Young. And this year was the biggest event ever. It had 950 people. Um, 
there were a lot of men in the room, a lot of, uh, I would say new people, obviously it was the biggest one ever, new people in the audience. And, um, I can't speak to what the funds were raised. I, I'm sure the event still cost a lot and I know it was a lot of work, but just the awareness, um, I do think, I, I still think that that's important, especially in terms of bringing in new relationships and starting to develop those. That's great. Thank you. Joanne, did you want to? I think um, whether you, you decide you've got it in your organization to do to do a big event, um, and you have to just look at that. You have to find some way. You have to figure out some way that you make an opening um, for people to get to know you and get to like you, and and to do something modest. And so, um, I can remember a time when uh, Children's Hospital, Children's Hospital Foundation still does telephones, but this was a really long time ago. It was like at least two locations ago in terms of where the hospital was. And uh, that at that time, John Huggett was leading um, the fundraising for the Children's Hospital Foundation. And what he said was, um, you know what? Donations of 10 and $20 add up. They, they add up. So it's it's really a, a difficult thing because I I worked on an event that was costly and um, well it was a very successful event and we had it shut down by our board of governors because they thought it cost too much money and uh, so we lost that opportunity to have a big party and have the people in the room and think it was great and say I never knew this you know like I never knew this organization in this way and. Um, I think you gotta balance it, you know, like if you're thinking, oh well it just maybe it's just easier to go ask that person if they'll give us twenty five thousand dollars. Okay, maybe that's easier, maybe it's not, but I think you need to think about having that balance of where your support is coming from. Great. Thank you. Another question? Hands up, don't be shy. I want to thank you all for your investment in the Calgary community and your time, talent, and treasure. Um, sorry, my name is Joelle Marr, and I'm within From the Cold. And I specifically want to ask a question about family philanthropy. Obviously, both of you or both families are very philanthropic. So what did you do to foster philanthropy within your families? And um, I guess as a second part question, Kate and Rebecca, what are you doing within your own families to foster um, philanthropy? Great question. You want to start? Oh, you want the first generation to sure. start? Sure. <laughs> we'll start with the youngest first. <laughs> well, I think I was certainly raised in a family where my parents were very involved in the community. It was sort of uh, something that, uh, you know, they both of them did. And so it was obvious that, that I was going to follow in those footsteps because I'd helped, uh, whether it was, pouring tea with my mother at the church or uh, out there uh, helping my dad uh, with a couple of his curling fundraisers or whatever. There were, you know, everybody helped out. Uh, it was a different time. And um, I think uh, our kids were certainly uh, involved with it. We've tried to, uh, to include uh, the families and things that we do. Um, both uh, my husband and I are, are engaged with the with We Day, and it moved to Edmonton this year, but we've taken uh, our kids to the We Days. Uh, we've taken the our grandchildren to see uh, some of the shows and and try to provide those opportunities. It's not really ever a lecture. It's um, I think it's leading by example. Great comment. Who wants to go next? Um. Ahead, I can do this, and then we'll be done with the parent perspective. <laughs> um, Generation you know, one, like, check. We talked a little bit about this at our at lunch together in terms of, like, so I personally, neither did Charlie come from a family that saw themselves as being um, those big donors into the community. You know, you'd have the things that you'd do to help out around, around the community. Uh, the, you know, my parents were children of the Depression, right? And so it was just like, you know, you kind of had to be careful and you took, you, you took things carefully. Um, so again, it was like Charlie probably first experienced, you know, he got permission 
to take on certain roles in the community. He was still a pretty young guy. He was working in an oil company, yes, but like just a young guy. And uh, he got permission to get involved in something. It just changed the world for us being involved with that organization. That was Hull Child and Family Services. It just opened our eyes to what the needs are in the community and how people um, find themselves in these places, not because they you know, wanted to be living a life like you know, with the struggles they were having. And that was, it was just life altering for us. And, and being involved with other people who were working hard on some of these important things, that was really just great company to be in. And so, you know, I think it is, you just kind of are, you know, you're in your homes and your households and parents and kids. Obviously the kids are, seeing what mom and dad do with their time and talk about it at dinner and stuff, and you're kind of dragged along to things. I think it just happens. I think also, you know, I feel like we were lucky. You know, so lucky, that's one thing. But I think, you know, in all families, this kind of thing is, um, it's it's modeled. It's, it's not anything, un, it's not unique and it's not unusual. It's just what happens in families, I think. Thanks, Joanne. Kate, Rebecca, what are you doing in your families? Um, what are you doing with your three-year-old yeah. right now? Oh, yeah, trying to get control. Um, <laughs> Good luck. Uh, we will try to do things with her, but yeah, I think it's going to be the same thing. It's just you know, it's it's what we'll talk about at home. My husband and I both think community involvement is is interesting. Um, and is valuable, and so I think it's just, she'll just get it. She'll just absorb it, because it's just what goes on in the house, what we think are, is important. And then, and then I think when you do think it's important, there's also ways you can find opportunity for your kids to do some stuff, even if it's sort of like, I don't know, it's a goofy example. It doesn't really relate to um, raising funds for the community, but, you know, I think because of it, I took an interest in things like student councils, and volunteering at school, and I just, you know, it seemed sort of like the kid version of what I could do to emulate what my parents were doing, and so I sort of hope, you know, my kids will will similarly take an interest at the level that's appropriate for them. Great. And you've got children that are a little bit older than that. Yeah, I have two daughters, um, just about nine and 11. Um, I guess I have a different entrance into the whole world. I was raised by a single mom who worked overtime all the time as a nurse to support three kids, so... Philanthropy and volunteerism just wasn't a part of my upbringing. I can tell you she absolutely did not have an extra minute. Um, but what I, she's probably one of the most inspiring people I know. Um, she worked hard every day to make sure that the three of us kids had what we needed and were able to be successful. And, uh, and so I'm, I've always been inspired by her, um, and her commitment to doing what's necessary. Um, and so, I think that I took that into my life, and, um, and to Joanne's comment earlier, I got involved with the Y because someone asked. Someone said, I'm going to try and start this gala, will you help me? And so I said, sure, I'll, I'll try to help, that'd be great. Were you <laughs> um, drinking? With that. <laughs> and so, um, and, you know, and, and it led to all sorts of wonderful, wonderful things, and uh, my kids are going to grow, are growing up in a in a different household than I did. I wouldn't say it's any better; it's just different. And um, they know all about the volunteer work that I do and that my husband does, and what their grandparents have done. And they, have learned, I think, they're just they see those values. We do talk about it a lot. Um, they're very aware of the work of the YW um, and Winsport and uh, the work that uh, my husband has done separately. And so I think. I'm hopeful that they see that we have the time and capacity to give, to contribute to the Calgary community and to make it better for everyone who lives in Calgary. And I hope that they take that, um, into their own lives. But, and I don't think we, I don't do anything specific other than trying to model being a good citizen. You guys are inspiring. Thank you so much for that. Uh, thanks for answering those questions. That's awesome. Um, I'm mindful of time, and I want to keep us on track, and so there, there's an opportunity after to ask some questions, but we'll need to keep her moving. Um, folks, those are great questions. Thank you. For those who are not able to ask the questions, I'm sure you can uh, ask our panel when we officially end the podcast in a few minutes. Uh, panelists, though, before we go, I want 
each of you to have a chance to tell us a little bit more about what you're working on, what you want us to think about, what's important to you right now. And so maybe I'll start first with you, Rebecca. Okay. Um, <laughs> I well, know I switched it up. <laughs> <laughs> so while I did term out um, at the YW in June, uh, after six years on that board, as I mentioned earlier, we are still $7 million away from finishing our $20 million campaign. So that and we're not leaving the room until it's done. Yeah. <laughs> so that is definitely important to me and seeing those doors open uh, in that new facility in the spring. Um, and then um, oh, we could talk for hours about the Olympic bid, but obviously Winsport uh, is an incredible organization for the city and providing a place for families um, to expose their kids to sports and athletics. And um, the legacy funds from the 88 Olympics aren't going to last forever as we see that facility need capital investment and renovation. And so I think um, that'll be a big campaign for Calgary in the years to come. For and sure. I hope that we see that investment uh, in, in, that, in that other sector in the not-for-profit world. Awesome. Thanks for that. Kate? Um, well, as I've talked about already, um, we have been working hard to refine our case for support for the NICU um, and in the last few weeks have been able to secure our support from the government, uh, which I think is really important and appropriate for, um, uh, for a campaign that really serves the public. You know, like there's an element of that renovation that that the government should have, they should have skin in the game too. So that's fantastic because now we can go out and we can say to the public, they will do that piece and we will do the piece that, you know, that, that is above and beyond what you would expect of, you know, of your government in a capital project. And we will connect the research in and we'll make sure that research is done on the floor and we'll make sure that the understanding gets out to the community clinics. And so we're really excited because I think that lets us get started on our campaign, but um, we have a lot of money to raise in the next couple of years, so that will right, be... another call. Lock <laughs> Joanne, what would you like the room to hear? Um, you you talked about the uh, Perimeter Institute for Theoretical Physics at, in cool the intro. And um, I'm going to refer to that simply uh, from the perspective of why it's attractive to me, not because I have any background in physics. But what inspires me is that it aims to be the best in the world. And I think whatever level we're working at, and even to be so inappropriate as to talk about that vote on the Olympics, but, um, you know, we have got to have big dreams, and we've got to set high goals, and we have to work hard and drive for those things. And if we don't, if we just like put our heads down and sorry. So good. <laughs> and, nice way to emphasize. <laughs> and say, oh no, it's too hard. Oh no, we can't take that risk. So perimeter aims to be the best in the world, and it is. And it's in Canada. And started by a Canadian. And it's like, and what else can we do? You know, like that's, that's great. What it means. That's a great way to, to be a Strong Canadian. Yeah. Now, are they at, is that Waterloo? Waterloo. Waterloo. That's right. Yeah. It's a great place. Awesome. Yeah. Stephanie, you get the last word. Well, well uh, last word. I get the accent. You do. You do. Um, I've always had a passion around the homeless and, uh, and realizing that unless people have a roof over their head, nothing's going to change for them. And so, whether it's the Calgary Homeless Foundation Resolve, uh, they've been part of my life for the last 20 years, and I will continue to do everything I can to make sure that in this city, with all the opportunities that we have, that that our most vulnerable people um, do have some shelter, because we can't provide supports uh, to make anybody's life any different. Uh, unless they start with the roof over their head. That said, uh, with the Calvary uh, Police Foundation, we're also working um, with social workers, um, the police themselves, and the school systems to uh, make things, um, you know, a, a, an inter-system support is where we're going. And I guess as I'm ending into my sunset years with fundraising, that is the most important thing to me is system change. Like, who should be paying for these things? Do we need to have the police, a social worker, and a teacher 
all providing supports? Who should be paying for that? How are we going to make a difference? None of us going to happen unless they have a roof over their head. And I think that that's where Calgary's values just shine because uh, we're always trying to make everybody's, uh, all our citizens' life uh, a little bit better for everybody. So that's where I am. Thank you, Stephanie. Ladies, it's been a fantastic discussion. Honestly, I think we could spend the rest of the afternoon talking with you. Lots to think about and more than a few calls to action. I know I wrote down a few. Thank you all. You've all been great guests. Kate, Rebecca, Stephanie, Joanne. On behalf of all of us in the room and all of our podcast listeners, thank you. I look forward to when we can do this again. I look forward to having each of you back on our podcast. Folks, thanks for being such a great audience. Thank you for coming. Please give it up for our panel and yourselves. With, with that, with that, our gift of another brain trust philanthropy powered by Vitreo has been committed. Well, that's about it for this episode of Brain Trust Philanthropy. I hope you'll join us next month when our topic will be fundraising in faith or faith in fundraising. We will be exploring what it takes to be successful in faith-based fundraising. Joining us will be Tom Berkoff and Ray Marshall, both experienced fundraisers with faith-based communities. Until then, enjoy the rest of January, and we look forward to talking with you next month. Brain Trust Philanthropy is powered by Vitreo and is produced by Lauren McMurray at Alchemy Communications and by me, Vincent Duckworth. Brain Trust Philanthropy is recorded in beautiful downtown Calgary, Alberta. Follow our show and engage with fellow listeners on Twitter at Powered by Vitreo. You can subscribe to Brain Trust Philanthropy on iTunes or by visiting our website at vitreogroup.ca. Wishing all of you success in your mission, peace in your lives, hope in your hearts. I'm Vincent Duckworth.